Thanks, Mike. Well, church, you're in for a big treat this morning because those words that you just saw and heard are about to jump right off the page and land <laughs> in a very personal place in your life. We are delighted, we're thrilled, we're honored to have Kylie Avia um, sharing God's word with us this morning. Kylie is a, an ordained covenant pastor. Um, she's a friend. Um, she was the first roommate I ever had at the first covenant conference I ever went to when she was expecting her now eight-year-old. Um, she and her husband, John, have four kids, two daughters, Sam, who you actually just heard from a little bit ago, and Abby, and two sons, Andrew and Silas. And they, we are honored also because they have chosen to call this their church home since last fall. So without further ado, Kylea. <laughs> Good morning, church. It is such an honor to be with you this morning. So when I was growing up, I was the only girl in a family with four brothers. I knew who I was in that house, largely because I knew who I wasn't. <laughs> I had peach walls and lace curtains. No bunk beds or overripe laundry hampers for me, thank you. I had a luxurious double bed and a space that smelled like body splash. <laughs> the best part, of course, was the door, because it was the perfect method to shut out all of the ruckus and establish a little sanity. I was the only one in that house with my own bedroom. Even my parents had to share. <laughs> now, the high school that I went to, and actually even the town that I grew up in, they were both so, somewhat similarly situated. You see, we knew who we were largely because we knew who we weren't. In a region most widely known for urban demise and our location in the Rust Belt, we were an island of exceptionality. <laughs> we all kind of do this from time to time, and I recently saw a post, a post on Facebook that I thought maybe it would resonate with some of you. We do have this habit, right, of defining ourselves by all that we are not. Ancient Greeks did this. They viewed all of the surrounding societies with such disdain that they invented a word for everybody else. But of course, barbarian didn't just mean non-Greek. It also meant uncouth, uneducated, unrefined. And Hebrews have also historically had such a designation. At best, Gentile can, well, it can be a neutral word, just meaning not Jewish. But in the first century, the Jews lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and the scorn that they reserved for Gentiles was anything but neutral. You see, Gentiles were considered impure, lower than dogs even. They had a reputation for indulging in every whim that their bodies considered enticing. Gentiles worshipped a whole host of gods who behaved worse than humans even, and their worship rites involved all sorts of sexual profanity. Paul was likely quoting a common saying about Gentiles in Philippians 3.19 when he writes, Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And it, it's against that backdrop where there really was a physical wall in the temple courts blocking the Gentiles from coming any closer to God's presence. A wall with a sign that said, if you're a Gentile and you're found beyond this gate, then you alone will be responsible for your death. It is against this background that Paul 
writes Ephesians and the passage we come to this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has two main objectives in this passage. First, he wants to remind believers that there is nothing more hopeless, more desperate, more well, terrible, really, than being separated from God. Humility and gratitude are the only fitting response to the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus. And secondly, he's calling the Ephesians towards identification with their new status. Just like Pastor Brad taught us last week, by believing in Jesus, we are permanently transferred to the body of Christ. We're part of a new humanity. So this is the so what of the gospel. Who they are in Jesus should be so strong in their hearts and their minds that it outweighs all of the previous dividing lines and hostilities. Jesus establishes a new humanity. It's no longer Jew nor Gentile. It's centered on Christ. And the evident love between all people who have walked through the waters of baptism should be so remarkable that it serves as a monument, a temple, attracting the curious to Christ. We're going to listen to this Bible passage once more this morning, and so I invite you this time to stand with me. Ephesians 2, 12 and following. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Now, like every person I know, I tend to define myself most meaningfully by all that I am not. I identify as a teacher or a preacher sometimes, so mostly I work with ideas and with people. Sometimes this means that I'm prone to believe that I'm a little different from folks who work with their hands or with their backs. Like me, many of you identify with your alma maters. I saw a few different shirts this morning. Sometimes we think that we're different than from those who attended our rival schools or maybe even no college at all. We find our identity in our trade unions, if our experience includes military service, in how we vote or if we even qualify to do so. We divide ourselves up by our zip codes, by the kind of pets we have, by, I don't know, if we have kids, and if so, the myriad of choices that come with parenthood, right? 
We signal our membership in these groups by the clothes we wear, our favorite foods, our accents when we speak English, or whether we speak English at all. And the difference is just, well, they're evident everywhere we look, and they're just as evident in the church as they are in the world around us. Now, something you should know about me is I have a slightly overdeveloped sense of argumentation. So if I were in the audience this morning, this would be the point where my inside voice, at least, would start to answer back. Of course, we have social markers. Kylia, there are entire industries focused on perfecting the art of codifying and predicting and labeling people through the use of algorithms so advanced that they know what I want to buy before I know what I want to buy. I mean, that, I think maybe that deserves an amen, right? <laughs> Our social markers are just a facet of human nature. They're not all that bad either. Veterans who have seen war, they do have a unique perspective on life, and it's not one that the rest of society shares. I think that's legit. Besides, doesn't God say in Revelation that all the nations are going to be present there before the throne? I think that means you're going to be able to tell them apart. God likes diversity, so why shouldn't we? Here's what I think Paul would answer. You're right. Divisions, good ones and unhealthy ones, have always been a part of the human experience. God knows we've got a soft spot for people who are like us. That's part of why we were placed in families. But the problem arises when the differences that we experience are leveraged as an argument for superiority. Hmm. When our dividing walls of hostility are allowed to continue even into the family of Jesus. You see, when Christians persist in defining ourselves primarily by all the things that we are not, that means that superiority has crept in. When we keep on believing or acting as if our choices, our experiences, our lineage, our family tree, as if those things make us more deserving of God's blessing than others, well, we cease to be evidence of God's good news. See, if we only love people who are just like us, we risk becoming a witness against the gospel instead of a living testament of God's power to transform. In Ephesians 2, God says that identification with our new life in Jesus should be so strong that it outweighs all of our previous dividing lines and hostilities. As Paul so poetically writes, Jesus has torn down the wall, the barriers that separate us. It says he's put our hatred to death on the cross. Yeah, that's nice, I guess, but hatred is a pretty strong word. I mean, I don't think anybody hates me because I'm not Jewish. And, well, to be honest, I don't really hate other groups of people either. Maybe this is a good example of a passage that was uh, really meaningful and applicable in a different time and era, but it's not really that relevant now. Aren't we kind of past that as a society, anyhow? Uh, sure, I've got a few personal enemies. And don't even get me started because you don't know how I was hurt. But I'm not racist. I don't hate large groups of people. <laughs> On the surface, you're right. You see, most of us in this room have come of age around or after the Civil Rights Movement. And with a few persistent pockets of exception, our national aspirations of equality have impacted our social taboos. We've been taught to articulate or believe, I suppose, that the days of outright enmity are over. But God is asking us this morning to do a little work, to dig a little bit deeper than what's visible on the surface. 
So what if we changed that charged and dated word enmity with today's equivalent? What if we traded it out? What if we said that Christ himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of apathy and distance that plague our churches today? Apathy, distance, inaction, silence. Apathy in the church feels like something is vaguely sad with the situation that is endured by another people group, but it allows no real sense of identification with the other ones because, after all, we know who we are and we know who we aren't. I feel sad when asylum seekers are blockaded at the Mexican border, suffering in tent cities and preyed upon by gang members and kidnappers. But I don't really feel connected to the problem because that's them. And this is me. Besides, that's like 1,500 miles away. But not even 15 miles away. The same perception of distance occurs. I might feel dismayed that there are public high schools in St. Paul who post single-digit passing rates on the state standardized exams. But to be honest, it's not an emergency because those aren't my kids. After all, I've only got so much bandwidth, and those people are not my people. Besides, I've worked hard so that I don't have to live in that kind of a neighborhood. And so our dividing lines persist. I know who I am because I know who I am not. I'm a little shocked or perhaps even truly disappointed each time another headline talks about a black or a brown life ending prematurely when someone who is armed reacts with instinctual fear and implicit bias. I'm bothered, albeit momentarily, when I read that our nation has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. But change is slow, I tell myself. I'm, I'm sure it'll get better eventually. See, when we persist in defining ourselves by all that we are not, we end up, in the words of Dr. King, preferring a negative peace that is the absence of tension to a positive peace that is the presence of justice. And these events, these patterns in our society are disturbing, but the uncomfortable truth is that our capacity for empathy has become stunted because our narratives of identity from before we met Jesus are holding more sway in our understanding of who we are than anything that the cross or the church or our future hope has to offer. Maybe apathy isn't the best word. It feels kind of mean. Maybe it's just cloudy confusion about where our responsibilities, where our kinship, where our family obligation lies. After Cain killed Abel, God asked him where his brother was. Do you remember Cain's bitter reply? We live in the shadow of his answer even today. Am I my brother's keeper? God's answer, of course, is yes. Yes, I am my sister's keeper, and she is mine. What if God isn't just asking us to stop loathing other groups of people? What if God's not satisfied that we stop erecting our dividing walls of hostility, though that might be a fine place to start? What if God is asking for more? 
What if God is inviting us to join Jesus in the work of dismantling those very same barriers? What if God's good word of instruction to us this morning is to stop defining ourselves by all that we are not and start defining ourselves instead by all that we are in Christ? What could God do with that kind of radical realignment? What would the church look like if we were more committed to our sisters and brothers along the lines of faith than we were along the lines of socioeconomic status or citizenship or race or gender? Something interesting I noticed as I studied this chapter is that all of the pronouns in Ephesians chapter 2 are plural. You know that verse we often hear at the opening of worship, the one about how we are God's masterpieces? It's only two verses up from our passage this morning. And I certainly affirm that each one of us are unique and gifted, beautifully fit for service in God's kingdom. But I think the real masterpiece that Paul is talking about here is what happens when all of the parts of the body come together as a church and form the new humanity that Jesus establishes. When the church moves and grows beyond our old dividing lines and instead demonstrates a new way of living, bound inseparably to one another, that's when we become God's masterpieces, a display of God's good news for all the world to see. The gospel declares that once we have been reconciled through Jesus, we enjoy peace with the God that we wounded and offended. Corporately and individually, we are now included in God's family. We're adopted, and every one of us is given all of the rights of the firstborn. God's math doesn't employ a scarcity model, so in this family, every one of us inherits the whole estate. We are all the recipients of a promise. And we are the ones who have reasons to hope. Church, did you hear me? We, we, God's beloved, we are the ones who have reasons to hope that things will not always be as they are. And the way that we exist inside the church, the way we exist is supposed to give that hope to the world as well. God's good news is that all who follow Jesus will be, have been, are being, eternally drawn into embrace. God abides with us. And we are loved and forgiven and treasured by the one good God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is amazing news. This salvation is a phenomenal reality for us. And it is a reality that we share with little children who are kept even this morning from their parents and guarded in cold detention centers. This same Jesus that we talk to is listening to their prayers. And yet, the serpent still whispers in our ear. What does their suffering have to do with me? In our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our banks, there are saints in Jesus who suffer. 
And there's a whole spectrum from outright physical danger to spite to daily microaggressions, you know, that endless parade of small indignities that happens intentionally or otherwise. And the everyday lived experiences of sisters and brothers on the margins. Well, it's just too easy for those of us who don't live on the margins to dismiss and to disbelieve, to minimalize, or to ignore. But in this passage, God proclaims that the good news of salvation, the gospel, should be manifest in the church as good news for everyone. The church should look different from the world. The new humanity established by the gospel of Jesus should bind us in deep solidarity that acknowledges and confronts the realities lived by those that we too often count as other. Solidarity means that we are with, we are for one another in the face of adversity. Friends, I have to tell you, this is scary for me for all of the same reasons it's scary for you. It's uncomfortable because this passage feels like it just doesn't give us any wiggle room. It requires us to see and to hurt and to lament and to not look away. It requires that we mourn with those who mourn when I'd so much rather just rejoice with those who rejoice. Am I the only one who fears the avalanche effect? I mean, what if the more I get to know people and the more that I grow in friendship and I hear stories and I grasp their realities, what if the more I find myself under uncomfortable and inconvenient obligation? I don't know about you, but I just don't think I have the margin. It's too much. Actually, you're right. It is too much. It's too much for any of us. But Ephesians 2.14 tells me that Jesus himself is our peace. The faith that we share in common, the baptismal waters that we have both passed through, some of us only a week ago. These waters are more persuasive, more powerful. They demand more loyalty than all of the things that I am not. To be honest, I still hesitate, though. I hesitate because I fear the quiet possibility that I might find out along the way that I am somehow complicit in the suffering of others, about whom, really, I swear I bear no malice. And what happens then? I have enough guilt in my life without going looking for more, thanks. But, you know, as I wrestled with God this week about this passage... And you should know I wrestled. I need to tell you that the Holy Spirit spoke so much love to my soul. God reminded me that we're not expected to be anybody's savior. Praise the Lord. Jesus has got that covered. God is not set against me. God is not pointing an accusing finger at me unfairly for systems that I've inherited. But God is calling me today to widen my understanding of family. God wants our old allegiances to grow dull in the light of our shared salvation. The Holy Spirit wants to enlist me. He wants to enlist us in the work of building this new humanity. When we begin to define ourselves primarily by all that we are in Jesus instead of all the things that we aren't, that we don't have in common with others, 
Well, then the Holy Spirit reveals kinship in places we very least expect it. I am a pale, red-headed woman reared in Indiana. And after a fairly sheltered college experience at a Christian campus in West Michigan, I took a job with Teach for America in a little grade school not even a mile north of the Rio Grande. And all of my students were Hispanic. They printed our class photo, the one you see up here on a t-shirt, and the kids laughed because they said against the white fabric of the t-shirt, of the all you could see of me was my hair and my eyes. I think they weren't that far from the mark. And all of my kids came from extreme poverty, and some of them, as children, had even already worked the fields. They had tasted realities that I couldn't imagine. And I came from a middle-income family that valued education as the gateway to advancement. I guess the families I served valued education too, but it was different because, you see, more than half of those fourth graders had already received more schooling than their parents had achieved. Our realities were so different. But I can't tell you how much I grew and learned during those years and then afterwards in the years when I spent processing my experiences. I came to understand that many of the families that I served knew Jesus better and in more ways than I did. They knew Jesus as a provider, as a healer, as a deliverer. There were parents of my students who unintentionally discipled me. And that initial experience as a young adult now, two decades ago, helped me recognize how some systems, you know, the same systems that propel some, often serve to impede others. And I began to hunger for a church that looks a little bit more like that new humanity forged by Jesus on the cross. Originally, I thought I had nothing in common with the community that I served. But I came to celebrate that neither one of us are any longer foreigners or strangers. We are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as our chief cornerstone. In closing, this passage calls us to be a church whose identity is found in Jesus. Christians who find their most compelling identity in, in Christ, well, they tend to grow in proximity to others, even others who look or speak or vote differently than we do. We grow in self-aware solidarity that eventually ripens into advocacy and generous action because our understanding of our boundaries of who counts as family is so gloriously expanded. One way that we can recognize growth in this area is to check our propensity to hear and to believe other Christians who are in pain. So maybe we check our news feeds. Does our diet give us opportunity to hear other Christians who are in pain? How or with whom might God be asking you to grow in humble listening, to learn from, to stick with, even even if it's awkward. Friends, it is in holy solidarity and genuine friendship that crosses human lines that we most powerfully both experience the gospel and then together become a living testament, a monument to hope. Just like the apostles and prophets, a community of faith that draws its identity from the saving work of Jesus grows in its dependence on the Holy Spirit, 
Friends, heaven knows our, the needs around us are already and ever will be so much greater than our capacity to respond. And so a church that is like this has to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. We've got to talk, we've got to pray, we've got to ask for guidance. We've got to be able to discern what's the difference between a need and a call. And then, when we do cross those lines and we find that we can't contain all the hurt that we encounter, all the injustice, then we rely on the Holy Spirit again and we release that hurt to the only one who can take it on. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what God is inviting us to be. Amen. This morning, as the service concludes, um, we will have some trusted friends who have come forward to pray with you if you would desire prayer for any reason. I will be here myself also, and you're welcome to, to join us. I'd like you to stand now, and we will be sent out with a benediction that comes from 1 John 4, 15 and following. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace.